Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. Okay, so let's stop there for just a second and look at a couple of textual things that are going on just in this section. So we've talked uh, in the last lesson about what Matthew is trying to do right out of the gate with his gospel. So he begins in 1 through 17, a section called the Inkipit. It would be the opening of the book. Uh, books didn't necessarily have titles. So sometimes they did, but um, didn't always have a title, but they would have some sort of little opening uh, in Kippet. And so uh, imagine if you go to a bookstore and you say, you could say, hey, I want um, Tale of Two Cities. Or if there was no title, you could say, hey, do you have that book? Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Everybody would know what you were talking about, right? They recognize the beginning. And so um, with um, the... Uh, uh, gospel of Matthew, it's the same way. There's no, uh, this is the gospel. Matthew wrote this. There's none of that. Right at the beginning, it says, this is the genesis of Jesus. This is the Biblios uh, Genesios, the, the, the book of the beginning of Jesus. Again, calling in those ideas from Genesis, calling in those genealogies from Genesis chapter five and elsewhere, letting you know right out of the gate, this is a continuation of scripture. This is not just a report about some guy I know. This is not just notes about some good teacher we had. Uh, whoever wrote this, uh, traditionally it's a, a given to the apostle Matthew. Matthew is saying, 
right out of the gate, this is a continuation of scripture. This is a continuation of the biblical story. This idea that uh, Jesus was God or that this book should be scripture was not really something that came along later. This is something that's right here in the text, right in the opening sentences. Hey, this is a continuation of Torah. This is a continuation of the prophetic writings and the story of God's people. And he's constantly drawing allusions to several people. Uh, we see Abraham and Judah and David right here in the genealogy. But we also see allusions to Moses. And uh, we, we'll see some of those things throughout some of the, the, the sections that we're looking at tonight. And what Matthew is really trying to do is trying to draw these parallels between Jesus and these highly regarded figures from um, uh, the, the Jewish faith. So remember, Christianity is really just an extension of Judaism. It is the fulfillment of the ideas of Judaism. Judaism uh, promotes that there will be a Messiah that will come to save everyone. Matthew is telling you right here from the beginning, as the angel does in this dream to Joseph, Jesus is the, the saving one. He's the chosen one. This is the one that's going to save the people of Israel. And even in this early story, he's already being pointed out as being of the line of David. Notice again, let's go back to the dream. And notice what the angel says to uh, Joseph in the dream. Joseph, son of David. Right? So uh, Joseph's father is not named uh, David. So why does the angel call him that? Well, Matthew is trying to get your attention. He's trying to let you know this is a continuation of the line of David. Who was David? Well, we just finished a whole series on David showing how he was king and he fulfilled this role not just in a military uh, political sense but he was anointed by God in a spiritual sense to be the spiritual leader of the people of Israel Saul was anointed before him and failed honestly in both of those categories but particularly failed in the spiritual category David had some personal failures there's no question his personal failures some of them were, were worse than anything Saul ever did but he was anointed as the spiritual leader of the people of Israel, as well as the, uh, the the national king, the political king. And so right out of the gate, Matthew is letting the hearers of this gospel know, the hearers of this sermon, he's letting them know that this is a continuation of the David story. This is a continuation of the David lineage. The, the chosen one must come from the line of David. And here it is, just reminding you, in case you missed it from the genealogy earlier, Joseph is a son of David, and any child that he raises would be considered a son of David as well. So um, we see that happening here. We also see uh, this angel of the Lord speaking to uh, Joseph in dreams. And again, this brings up uh, lots of um, instances like this in scripture. And uh, this idea of uh, an angel from the Lord, the word angel just means messenger. And so when you see here in verse uh, 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. What you're seeing is a messenger of the Lord or some sort of visual representation of the Lord coming to him to speak. And again, this just reminds me at least a lot of the stories of Abraham. When the Lord would come to Abraham and would give him messages and the Lord would, would appear. Remember when the three men came to visit Abraham, things that we talked about back in the, the Genesis series and the light and the darkness series. So again, in just one story, really in just one verse, you see calls back to Abraham, you see calls to David. And now you see that this uh, child is going to be born and that there is some sort of prophecy that has been fulfilled. 
So uh, scrolling on down here to verse 23, and you see this idea that a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And uh, just before this, you'll see that uh, uh, the angel says to call him Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. And this idea that he is called Jesus is connected with this prophecy here, uh, Emmanuel. So what's going on here? What is the connection here? Well, the um, verse that is being uh, referred to here is Isaiah 7, 14. And this is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah and uh, Assyria is sort of the bully in the known world at the time and is threatening to attack. And so there's this Western alliance of nations that is going to sort of bind together to protect themselves from Assyria. The northern kingdom of Israel is one of those. Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. They already had split by this time. And so um, Ahaz is deciding he's going to join Assyria, that he's going to essentially um, go to the, uh, the the bully in the neighborhood and make a deal uh, similar to uh, maybe a small shop that opens up and makes a deal with, uh, you know, the mob of the city where the, the mob says, boy, you know, we sure hate it if uh, something happened to your storefront. Maybe you should make a partnership with us and pay us so much a month. Right. So this is what Ahaz intends to do. And uh, Isaiah is really calling him out on it and saying, by the time this girl this little girl who is a virgin, actually in the Hebrew, the word means maiden. It doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It just means a young girl, which um, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which is what Matthew would have been familiar with. It's what Matthew's hearers would have been familiar with, translates it to a Greek word, which literally means virgin, someone who has never had sexual relations. Well, it seems like they're two different words, but they're really not in concept because if you're a Jew and you're abiding by the law, an unmarried young girl, of course, is going to be a virgin. And so that is the sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz, this girl who is currently a maiden, who is currently um, a, a virgin, will have a child. And before, by the time the child knows right and wrong, he says, uh, age two, three, something like that. By the time the child knows right and wrong, here are the things that are going to occur. And so when Isaiah gives this prophecy to Ahaz, when you read it in context, it doesn't seem like it's specifically about any coming Messiah. It doesn't seem like there's any future prophecy really attached to it. So why would Matthew bring that here into this section of scripture? Well, let's look at it again. So he says, you're going to call him uh, Jesus because he will save people from their sins. So Jesus, uh, Yeshua means God saves, the Lord saves. And um, so it's interesting. So if you say Jesus saves, you're actually saying the Lord saves, saves is what you're saying. It's kind of like saying ATM machine. Uh, but uh, so Jesus, Yeshua means God saves. And that's why he says, because he will save people from their sins. And so he um, goes to quote this prophecy here because it uh, is translated, uh, God is with us. God comes to, to be with us and God will save Israel or God will save, in this case, Judah. God will save the people of God. And so the implication here is that just like in the story of Ahaz, if you align yourselves with the worldly powers, you're going to kind of be on your own. But if you wait on God, if you trust in the Lord, the Lord will save you. And so you can see here how these two stories began to tie together. 
And um, what becomes something unexpected is the fact that Mary, who is a maiden who has not had sexual relations, becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. More details are given in the Gospel of Luke about all of that. Uh, Joseph, of course, is confused because here he has been betrothed to this young woman and finds out that she's pregnant. He's very embarrassed. This was highly scandalous in their time. So here's Mary, who's probably a teenage girl. She's become pregnant. They're not even married yet. It's very scandalous for both of them. And in fact, Jewish law uh, dictated that he should take Mary to the doorstep of her father and have her stoned to death. But what does the scripture say about Joseph? It says um, uh, right back here in 19, Joseph being a righteous man, because Joseph was a good man, he did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to divorce her secretly. Uh, just one note on the idea of uh, divorce. So betrothal was uh, a little different than our engagement. Uh, in the first century, in this uh, Jewish context, the way betrothal worked was like this. Typically, you would have two families. It was the parents and the families that were deciding how the marriage was going to go, who was going to get married. Those who were being given in marriage were typically very young. Uh, the girls were in the young teens, possibly as young as, as, as 12, because at 13, remember, you were an adult. Uh, most people didn't live past the age of 40 in this time. So uh, by the time you were 13, you were an adult and you were contributing to the family. And that's sort of the way things go. Our society is much different now. So we have a lot different notions about these kinds of things. But this was the way of the world at the time. So the parents would give the the, the two in marriage. Uh, typically, the, the young man might be in his late teens or early 20s. The girl might be in her early teens or late teens. And they would come together and they the family would say, you know, uh, we're, we're going to uh, make a covenant with each other in marriage. They would drink from the same cup. And so they would say, this is the cup of our new covenant. And they would all drink from it together to symbolize we are together in this. Um, this is something about drinking from the same cup. It's kind of the idea that this isn't poison. We're all going to drink from it together to show that we're in this together. Same idea as breaking bread with somebody. When I take a piece of bread and I tear it in half, you eat half and I eat half. We show it's not poisonous. It shows that we're friends, right? Same as shaking hands shows I don't have any weapons. These kinds of things that have evolved into very normal things for us, but they really began out of uh, issues of, of trust out of very violent societies. So this betrothal, they pass the cup around. This is the cup of our new covenant. And um, they uh, agree that they're going to remain chaste uh, and, and wait for each other and that they are now betrothed to each other and that nobody can tear that apart. Uh, with that, in this, in a legal sense, they can't do it without a formal divorce. This is why Joseph is saying that he was going to get a divorce, even though they weren't married yet. So why is that? Why was it so binding that they would have to get a divorce? Well, the reason is because after this betrothal ceremony, some things would have to happen. For instance, the man and the woman, they have to have somewhere to live. So this, this boy and this girl that are going to get married, they're going to become man, woman, they're going to become husband and wife. They have to have a place to live. Well, where are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do that in, uh, remember, this is a patriarchal society. So lineage comes down through the father. So the young man is going to take the young woman back to his father's house. Well, they need to, uh, at this point, he's probably been living in one room with all of his brothers and sisters and that sort of thing. Well, now he needs to have his own space. So he's going to go and he's going to build on to his father's house. He's going to add a room to his father's house. 
And then when that is done, he's going to come and he's going to get his bride and he's going to go back to his father's house. And that's going to become uh, the, 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 where they have the wedding feast and a week long wedding feast. They're going to have um, the, the wedding night there and consummate the marriage. And then that will be their home. So uh, again, you have them drinking from the same cup. This is the cup of our new covenant. We drink it together. Uh, we, we, we promise to be betrothed to each other and to no one else. The bridegroom goes away to make sure that there are plenty of rooms in his father's house. And then he's going to come back at some time that is sort of a surprise. So the date is usually known, but not the time of the evening. So sometime in the evening, the bridegroom would uh, come home or come to the, uh, the, the bride's house where she is waiting with her virgins, her virgin friends, her maiden friends. This is her bridal party. And it's usually night when this happens. So they are waiting with their oil lamps. You remember Jesus's parables about um, the, the wedding party waiting with their oil lamps. And because up to this point, everything has been very structured and, 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 and rigid. And in fact, it's been almost commercial-like. It's been uh, almost like a contract because you see, if the man is going to go build a house, he needs money to do that with. So there's a bride price and a dowry and some money changes hands. And uh, sometimes it's barter, sometimes it's actual you know gold, cash, um, denarii, those kinds of things. And so money has changed hands. Construction has happened. There's a lot of commitment that goes on as soon as the betrothal is uh, enacted as soon as the covenant is put in place. There's a lot of work that begins. And so to be able to back out of that is to really back out of this huge financial contract. The man has been building onto his house and uh, the woman has promised this money and the woman's family, this sort of thing. And so that's why it required a divorce because you were essentially breaking a contract after a lot of money had probably already been spent. This is also why it was so scandalous that there was sexual relations. Apparently, that's what it seemed like was happening with you got this pregnant woman and this unmarried couple. Very scandalous. Time had not yet come for that. So anyway, after the place would be built at the uh, father's house at the night of the wedding, the bridegroom would come sometime in the evening at an unknown time at a time that was not known to anybody. And he would come, quote, like a thief in the night. He would just show up in the middle of the night and he would show up at the window. He'd show up at the window because up until this point, like I said, there's not been a lot of romance in the, in the, in the wedding process at all, in the engagement process. And so now here comes the romance. He shows up as a surprise and to the surprise and delight of everyone. And of course, the, the, the bride herself, she's just waiting and waiting and can't wait for him to show up. And he shows up at the window and he takes her out of the window. He steals her, steals her away like a thief in the night, steals her out of the window. And the wedding party is waiting outside in the street and they carry uh, the bride back to the father's house. And they have this great uh, wedding festival. It's a great wedding feast. They go into the party and they shut the doors and they lock it so that only those, those who are invited to the wedding feast can attend. Now, if any of this whole process sounds really familiar to you, it's not because you know anything about Jewish wedding processes in the first century, but it's because you've read scriptures, because you've read the New Testament. Okay. And so now when you know what a first century, a first century wedding is like, now, a lot of the parables that Jesus has, now a lot of the things that Jesus does at the Last Supper, now uh, uh, a lot of the, the, the stories and the language that is used in the New Testament, suddenly it's not mystical, spiritual, weird stuff anymore. It's like, oh, he's just talking about weddings. 
You know, it just makes all the sense in the world. And this is what I really love about diving into the storytelling of scripture. When you can demystify scripture, when you can sort of clear the fog of scripture and make it real, make it about real people, about real things that really happened in real places. To me, that gives it a real power. To me, demystifying scripture gives it more power, not less. For me, clearing away all of the mystical spiritual text, uh, you know, fog of mystery about the Bible gives it more power, not less. It's more powerful to me when I know that it's real, that it happened to real people that real things are going on. So right here, just a couple of lines about Joseph and Mary and their engagement and the things that are happening. You can see there's a world of information that's being told through, told to you through the storytelling. We're making connections with Abraham. We're making connections with David. We're drawing on ideas about what weddings would have been like at the time that are all going to be setups for parables and stories and um, the Last Supper and other things that are to come, even the uh, things in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of stuff happening right here at the end of chapter one. So now this is the first of five prophecies. So uh, one thing that I think I mentioned in the last lesson is that there is uh, specifically, in, in addition to Abraham and Judah and David, things that are mentioned in the lineage, there is comparisons to Moses. And one of the big comparisons to Moses is the number five. So there's not a lot of real hard direct uh, parallels, but that number five kind of keeps coming up. The whole Gospel of Matthew is broken into um, really three sections, a very short beginning section, which is sort of the preparation for ministry. And that's what we're reading here. Jesus's birth sort of showing up on the scene and beginning to uh, sort of preach the gospel. Uh, that begins the second section, which makes up the majority of Matthew. And it's these five discourses. And what you have is you have narrative followed by a discourse. And so you have Matthew 3 and 4, which is uh, Jesus uh, being baptized and being in the wilderness and these kinds of things and, and the calling of the disciples. And then it's followed by the first big discourse, which of course is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And so there are five big sections like this in Matthew. And then the final section is what we would refer to as the passion or um, you know, Jesus um, being uh, arrested and beaten, crucified, uh, uh, put in the tomb and resurrected all the way through the Ascension Great Commission at the end of um, the Gospel of Matthew. Sorry if I spoiled the ending for you. So these are sort of the three overriding sections, the, the, the very beginning, the preparation for ministry, Jesus's five discourses of ministry, and then the passion. And so that big chunk in the middle, which is most of the Gospel of Matthew, is broken into five big narrative discourse collections. And we'll be looking at those over the course of the next few weeks. But that idea of five is reminiscent of Moses. Remember the five books of Moses, the five books of the Torah, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses, the five books of the Torah, that idea of five is really calling out the idea of Moses. Here we have this first prophecy. Well, there's going to be five fulfillment prophecies here in the um, uh, infancy narrative that we've just begun and that we'll finish here in chapter two uh, as we're very quickly running out of time. But this, these five prophecies, once again, call it the idea of um, of uh, uh, Moses. And again, what Matthew is trying to say here is Jesus is like Moses, but more. He's like David, but more. He's like Abraham, but more. And uh, 
we see that this would be really powerful to his audience, which was, of course, first century Jews, Jews who knew their scripture, Jews who were waiting on a Messiah, Jews who knew prophecy, Jews who were uh, part of a, a, a Roman, uh, they were under Roman rule. I mean, this very first prophecy here from Isaiah chapter seven, you know, uh, Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz as Ahaz is under the thumb of the Assyrian government. This would have been a prophecy that immediately resonated with the early hearers, the first hearers of the gospel of Matthew, the Jewish hearers, as they are under the thumb of the Roman rule. Contrast that to uh, the end of the Jesus story where, um, as uh, John records, the Pharisees say, we have no king but Caesar, right? They make the decision that they're going to follow the law of the land and not the law of the Lord. And uh, it cost them, uh, cost them dearly. Leads to Jesus's crucifixion. Okay, let's uh, keep reading before we run out of time. So let's go on to Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews?" For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be, uh, where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So once again, this is a prophecy that is coming from uh, Micah 5.2. It's uh, the idea that Bethlehem is going to be the place of birth of a king. And um, and um, that there will be some a continuation of the Davidic line coming from Bethlehem, uh, which means house of bread. This is also the birthplace of David. Again, this is archetypal, it's just showing, hey, this is this guy's very much like David, very much calling up all the ideas of David. Someone, a Messiah that was everything, Abraham, David, Moses, and more would have been very attractive to a first century Jew. Let's keep reading. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So just one little note here. Um, he's Notice he's a child and not a baby, right? He's been born, but it takes a while for these men to travel from the east and then to Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem. Um, Jesus would have been an infant by this time, not a newborn. So... Um, Sorry if your nativity scene has uh, the shepherds and the wise men all in the manger at the same time. That's not how it would have played out, but that's okay. I still, I have a nativity scene like that. It's okay. It's fine, but it's not what really happened. So um, also the manger 
would have been a not a wooden box with hay in it, but it would have been carved out of stone in the ground. It would have been a trough carved out of the stone ground that hay and things would have been put in. And because it was on the ground, it would have, um, well, animals live there and it would have been very dirty. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, let's keep reading. So even though he was born in filth, he's treated like a king. Okay, uh, verse 13 of chapter two. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Once more, Joseph has a dream with a messenger from the Lord. Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. So what prophet was that? Well, that would be the uh, Hosea 11 and verse 1. And if you go and look there, uh, it's referring to, of course, the exodus of God calling Israel out of Egypt. I called my children, some of the translations of that say. And again, this is God saving the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people, the salvation found in the hand of the Lord. You see it happening in a very uh, literal sense here as Jesus goes down to Egypt. And then, of course, um, the idea is that he comes out again later. But uh, again, this is one of five prophecies. Matthew, the narrator, is tying it into these prophecies saying, all of scripture is about this Jesus that I'm telling you about. This Jesus connects with all of scripture. And it Again, the idea of Moses heavily brought out here, and we'll see it again in this next section with the massacre of the, uh, of the innocents. The idea of Moses heavily connected with Egypt and um, being brought out from under the rule of Pharaoh. Again, a very attractive idea to first century Jews who are under the rule of Caesar. Okay, uh, the massacre of the innocents. Verse 16, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Um, they, they are not. They, they, they no longer live. So this is Rachel weeping for her children. Again, this is tying it back in to the family of the patriarchs, calling into mind the, all the children that were killed um, when Moses was extracted from the water. Let's keep reading. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Once again, you have a messenger from the Lord speaking to Joseph saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, yet another dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, what prophecy was this? Uh, we've got two here. So we've got the Jeremiah uh, verse that is um, alluded there. And then we've got this last one that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, could it be from uh, Isaiah 11 in verse one, where it refers to um, that he'll be a branch of David? The Hebrew word for branch is Netzer. And so uh, Nazareth quite possibly uh, means branch town, uh, 
the town of the branch, village of the branch, uh, Netzeref. And uh, so that's a possibility. It's a heavy possibility. Another could be Judges 13.5, where uh, talking about the story of Samson, talking about that he would be a Nazarite, that he would take this Nazarite vow. Well, Jesus certainly was not a Nazarite, did not take a Nazarite vow. So it may just be wordplay that um, the storyteller is using. Uh, um, my guess is it's probably alluding more to something like Isaiah 11, 1, that he's going to be a branch of the lineage of David. Bringing Samson into the mix is not something narratively that makes sense, but continuing this idea that he's like David, that he's a branch of David, that he's just, uh, this is just one more uh, branch of scripture that is coming at you. That is something that sounds like what Matthew would be trying to do. And so that is the fifth um, prophecy in the gospel. So here you have uh, Jesus as an infant. When we meet him next, he will uh, be growing and be um, beginning to get into his ministry. That's what we'll look at next time. And we look at these things in the infancy narrative. And what we have to ask is, why these stories? Why tell us, a, a storyteller cannot tell all the stories. So why is he picking these stories? And again, we just have to consider who was Matthew's audience. It was his fellow Jews. It was people that already had a background in believing in God, already had a background in scripture, and already were expecting a Messiah of some kind. And so Matthew, writing to his fellow Jews, is trying to make an argument. He's trying to convince them that this Yeshua from Galilee, from Nazareth, this unassuming, self-proclaimed rabbi, this nobody from nowhere town, this is the savior of the world. And not only is he Messiah, but he's actually God in the flesh. He's actually the son of God. And he's come to save everyone from their sins. Something that was even beyond the expectation of what the Messiah was going to be or do. So he's writing to his fellow Jews. This is going to determine the stories that he chooses, what order he puts them in, how they're laid out, and uh, these kinds of things. So you see the details of the story that Matthew chooses to use all hammer home these ideas that Jesus is a greater Abraham. Jesus is a greater Moses. Jesus is a greater David. Jesus, uh, Jesus's story is a continuation of scripture that uh, Jesus is very important, all pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. I, 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 I recall um, um Joe Shulam, who is the preacher of the Nativia Church in Jerusalem, it's a Christian uh, group of, of Jews in Jerusalem, mostly Jews. There's also uh, Gentiles in there as well, a lot of uh, uh, Koreans and Chinese. It's a very interesting congregation that I've been able to worship with. It's very cool. I got to be there on Passover. Um, my last trip to Israel it was quite a blessing. And so uh, Joe talked about growing up as a Jew and having his Christian friends say, well, just, just check it out. Just read the New Testament. Tell me what you think. And so finally, after being bugged for a long time, he decided to read the gospel of Matthew, picks it up. He looks at it and he says, this isn't Christian. This is Jewish. All this is Jewish. It's a genealogy. It's talking about Abraham. It's talking about Judah. It's talking about David. It's talking about clearly referring, referring to Moses, clearly referring to the Torah, the five books of Moses, got all these prophecies, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. And <clears throat> He just said, this is Jewish. This is Jewish. This is Jewish. Everything in here is Jewish. He gets to the Sermon on the Mount. All of this is Jewish. And that's the thing that we must remember because many of us, many of you listening to me right now are Gentile. I'm Gentile in background. 
we should be very thankful that we're included in the story of God now because this was all Jewish. This was all for God's chosen people. And what is great news is that we get to be included in God's story as well. And so just as the books, uh, the stories of Genesis are amazing. The story of the Exodus is incredible. Uh, the stories of, of numbers that we've looked at are just really shocking and wonderful. The, the, uh, stories of, of Joshua and, and, uh, the story of David and the, the, the stories of the Kings and the civil war and the, and the captivity and the, the prophecies. This is amazing as all those things are, as amazing as the gospel is, as amazing as the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and, and the, the, the prophecies of Revelation, as amazing as all those things are, the story continues. It's been placed in our hands. And we are to do like what Matthew has done. And we are to share who Jesus is with the people around us. We're to think about our audience. We're to think about the people that we love, the people who are listening to us, the people that we have influence over. Some people have a platform with uh, millions of people. Some people have a platform with a few hundred people. Some people have a platform with, you know, six or seven people. Whatever you got, one person, there's one person in the house. Make sure that they understand who Jesus really is and why you follow him, why you've given up everything to follow this Jesus. And the most important thing, the greatest news that they can hear is that this Jesus will save, that God saves. Yeshua, the Lord saves. That's the great news. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.